welcome back to Making Sense of Money. I'm Andrea Pellegrini, one of your hosts. Last episode, we talked about the topic that gives Nikki the heebie-jeebies, estate planning. It's not a fun or easy topic to deal with, but hopefully our podcast sheds a little bit of light on the subject for you so you can take the steps necessary to secure your loved one's future in case something happens to you. Now, I'm Nikki Jankola Shanks. Today, we're very excited to have on Illinois' Director of Banking, Chase Ramingle. We are going to focus on something called the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA. But first, Director, I know this isn't your first time on the podcast, but it's been a little bit. Can you tell our listeners what your role as Director of Banking entails? Yeah, thank you, Nikki. As the Director of Banking for Illinois, I'm responsible for supervision of the state-chartered banks, as well as the non-bank mortgage lenders and pawnbrokers and student loan servicers. So we have a number of different entities underneath that, about 300 state-chartered banks, well over uh, 900 mortgage banks that are non-bank. That would be like your Quicken loans and great rates. And then your student loan servicers like Navient and things like that have to license with us as well as pawnbrokers. All right. So Nikki mentioned that today we're going to be focusing on something called the Community Reinvestment Act or CRA. This is legislation that was first passed on the federal level back in 1977. Then Illinois just recently passed the State Community Reinvestment Act in 2021. So this is pretty recent. Chase, let's start with the Federal Community Reinvestment Act. What is the purpose of this law? Yeah, thank you. The history of the CRA, the federal CRA, is quite interesting, and it it has a lot to do with Illinois, actually, So, uh, and Chicago specifically. In the uh, 1930s, there was a lot of different projects that led to a practice called redlining. I think a lot of people know what the general idea about redlining, but maybe don't quite understand its history. So as part of some of the Great Depression working projects, there ended up being the Federal Housing Administration in the 1930s. And part of this was trying to develop underwriting standards on the federal side. And an actual economist, a land economist there named Homer Hoyt, develop standards that would go into creating these security maps, basically trying to judge different neighborhoods based on whether or not they were desirable or non-desirable. Type A was desirable. These were coded in green. And then there was type B, which is blue, uh, the next level down. Then C, which was yellow in the declining piece. And then D, which was red. These meant to be the most risky pieces of those those processes. And then those maps ended up getting used by a lot of private lenders and discriminated against those areas that were in red. They could justify that these were hazardous or risky lending opportunities, and therefore they didn't have to go into them. Well, it turns out a lot of the color coordination with those correlated with communities of color. And this was a way where a lot of private lenders could use a map that was designated around risk to discriminate against folks without actually saying that they were discriminating against uh, groups of color. So there was a movement to combat some of this redlining 
and bad public policy. And the kind of area, the epicenter where this became a lot of major organization around was in Chicago. The mother of the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, as she's called, is Gail Sincata, who was an organizer in the 1960s and 70s in, in Chicago and was fighting against redlining. In fact, only one banker testified in favor of, of redlining, and that was a Chicago-based banker, a former Shore Bank. So it really came from some of that organization across the country, but really in Chicago. And the idea was there needed to be an examination process around banking institutions so that they would invest into areas that were being ignored by the traditional banking community. The banking system, I've said this many times, is the circulatory system of our economy. It puts money from one place to another, makes sure that it moves through a community. And if you don't have access to that system, then your community is going to suffer and economic development is going to be very difficult. So the CRA was a way of examining banking institutions to make sure that they were uh, investing into these communities, low and moderate income communities, but also that matched up with communities of color. So that was the original purpose. It was passed in 1977 and has been updated a few times since then, but that was kind of the the backstory of uh, the CRA. I never realized that there were other color coding schemes in there. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that history lesson. (laughs) There's some very interesting maps that you can go look at today that show that. Some of the interesting things, I don't know uh, if I have the most updated statistics, but, and we'll get into this on how effective the CRA has been, but 74% of the neighborhoods that under that original map were colored red are still low to modern income neighborhoods today. So that's 80 years ago, (laughs) 74% of those red colored neighborhoods are still considered low to moderate income. And 91% of those areas that were labeled green are still upper income areas. 85% of those are predominantly white. So that's an interesting statistic that we'll uh, unpack later. And I'll be honest, I am very lucky that the director is also my boss, so I'm always learning from him. But I didn't realize how much Chicago ties and Illinois ties were with the federal CRA. So I found that that very interesting too. So just, just to clarify, what type of institutions does the federal CRA apply to? Is it only banks? It is only banks. And it has been since 1977. In the 1970s, banks were basically the only game in town. Now, obviously, there have been credit unions around. There's also something called a Morris Bank for people that are unfamiliar with that and some other smaller financial type institutions. But for most commercial lending in the United States in the 1970s, the major lending entity, the vast majority of them were banks. So what do the banks actually have to do for the Community Reinvestment Act? So they are examined periodically for lending, and they have different tests to make sure that they're investing into their community within their footprint. And this is the low and moderate income communities. There's a a wide range of things that might count toward making sure you get CRA compliance. Once that examination occurs, then the bank is graded, and those grades are public. So there are four 
federal grades to the CRA. The top is outstanding. Then you have satisfactory. Then you have needs to improve and then substantially non-compliance. And the FDIC actually maintains a online portal where you can look at the performance of each of the institutions. Now, if you are not in compliance, if you're substantially non-compliant or or below the satisfactory rating, there's a number of items that can come up that can cause issues for you. You can have difficulty merging into other banks, different application processes. I know that a lot of public funds, including the public funds here in Illinois, restrict institutions that have a non-satisfactory CRA from doing business with uh, the state. So that's holding our deposits, things like that. Those can be major issues. Also, if you are substantially non-compliant, compliant, you get examined a lot more often. So I believe in the federal law, it's two years if you're non-compliant, they'll back in there in, in having those issues. And if you're in the outstanding category, it's five years. So you actually get longer time between those to deal with that. There's a lot of local municipal issues that can come up, but that is how the grading system works and the examinations they can take weeks to go through and they have to go through all their lending documents. Um, and sometimes there will be different tests related to fair lending and things like that to make sure that the institution is behaving in accordance with what they expect with the Community Reinvestment Act. So just like for clarifying, in what cases, like how badly does a institution have to perform to be substantially non-compliant? So like what, what are the red flags that lead to that grading? It's a great question. And this has been a part of the debate on whether or not the CRA needs to be updated or why certain states have been updated. There's a large criticism from a lot of advocates in that space that too many institutions are getting satisfactory ratings, whereas there are still many low and moderate income communities that don't seem to get the same attention. It's a difficult debate to have because in some ways, a lot of that information isn't totally clear to everybody at every given time. It is definitely true that our financial system has not addressed every community within the United States in an equitable manner. And there are a lot of banking institutions that would acknowledge that. And we can go into how our financial system has changed since 1977. But the other pieces of this Sometimes it is unclear to financial institutions, you know, what what they need to do to to be in compliant, and therefore they'll complain that it's it's hard for us to actually address a specific policy problem without understanding what does and does not count within the CRA. That being said, what we do know with the federal CRA is if you aren't doing a lot of retail community lending to everywhere in your footprint you'll be criticized pretty significantly for that. And there are major institutions that have had issues in the past, and those have become very public, and they have caused major issues with other states and other Federal Reserve entities. And that, that actually also begs other questions of other regulatory groups. I'll say right now, if you are performing very poorly in your CRA, since it's a public information, most of the regulators that are associated with those institutions are going to go ask them, what are they doing to improve on that? And that could include um, state-based regulators, but it also can include other federal regulators like the CFPB and things like that, even though they don't have a direct role in community reinvestment. But 
the major issue has been brought up that not that many entities get a satisfactory or, or a non-satisfactory rating and whether or not that is a true measure of the financial system and where we're at is kind of difficult to to discern. I think that makes sense, especially with all the different metrics that are used to measure the way the economy is doing, the the financial health of a community, geographic differences and wealth disparity, income volatility. Like there's so many metrics to look at and how the CRA impacts those different metrics or what metrics can be used to inform policy changes can be confusing. Yeah. The goal has always been to be make a public show of entities that are doing really well and entities that are really not doing well. And we can go into its effectiveness, but you know that that has changed over time. And so it is it is sometimes difficult for folks to to fully understand the impact that the 1977 law has today. Chase, you kind of talked a little bit about this already, but just to kind of spell it out, are there consequences if the financial institution doesn't comply with the CRA? I know you said it's it's been more about public acknowledgement, but I didn't know if there was anything else. So obviously the public piece is a direct reputational risk. If you are known as having a bad community reinvestment piece, that will have a negative impact on your ability to attract customers, both large institutional investors and individuals. From a more practical standpoint, it does make it more difficult to do different applications like mergers, closing of branches, et cetera. And those are major tangible things that especially large commercial banks need to deal with, and that can cause issues. And then, like I said, public deposit money, which is huge, CRA matters. And in some states, it is actually legislatively set out that if you aren't meeting those goals that you cannot get public money. And those those are you know very important for a lot of different institutions. So we've talked a little bit about the consequences, kind of the challenges with policy reform regarding the CRA, especially at the federal level. Since you're familiar with kind of the history of CRA, have you seen the impacts of the Federal Community Reinvestment Act over the years? Like, what has that looked like? It has had an impact, and it is a very important law that was passed in 1977. There have been a lot of studies that have shown that because of that passage, there has been a shift toward more investment into low and moderate income communities. There are a few criticisms that I think are absolutely fair and worth going through. The first being one that I had already stated, a lot of institutions get satisfactory ratings and there aren't as many that get non-satisfactory. That doesn't mean that most institutions aren't doing a good job in their community, but you can see that there's still a lot of financial inequity in our system. It's not necessarily a bank problem. That's our financial system as a whole problem that involves government. We need to take on that criticism as well. So you can say that, well, you know, did did this actually have the impact it was supposed to have since we still have these inequities? I went over that percentage conversation earlier about the redlining. A lot of those communities that were redlined in the 1930s are still low to moderate income communities today. So was that really a major impact? Tough to tell. There are also some criticisms from the financial world that are in some ways fair, but also need to have caveats. So 
there are a lot of programs in the 90s and the CRA is part of this that pushed for more home lending to low and moderate income individuals. And for better or worse, that ended up creating a bubble that led eventually to the Great Recession in 2007, 2008. Now, I would argue, and without going into this too much, that actually insuring those and bundling those mortgages is what really caused that major bubble. But it's without a doubt true that there was more loans going to folks that were riskier investments. And therefore, a lot from the financial community says, well, you know, that did cause kind of an inherent economic risk in our system. I'm not moved that much by that debate, but it's worth bringing up that there is a general criticism that this is moving institutions into unprofitable areas. Although there have been quite a few studies that have shown that at very least, a lot of entities that a lot of low to moderate income lending around the CRA has been moderately profitable for banking institutions since 1977. I think the major criticism on impact that I feel very strongly about is that our banking system has changed since 1977, our financial system in general. And maybe the impacts that it had in 1978 or 79 are very different than they are in 2022. And I think that is a very fair criticism that both the financial side and the advocate sides would acknowledge. And you know, the CRA is also not a panacea. When we put these kind of examination pieces in, we also have to add additional programming that has consequences and also has incentives to do that type of lending. So I think that's also important to acknowledge. So as Chase, you've mentioned, this passed in 1977. That is obviously a long time ago and a lot has changed. So has anything with the federal CRA changed? policy level, on an implementation level? So there have been periodic updates to the CRA, whether through regulation or uh, direct congressional action. There have been some minor tweaks over the last 15, 20 years, but the last major update was in 1995. And really, these updates have been around footprint, retail sales, you know, trying to measure the different impacts in terms of banking. And Since that 1995 change, there have been further criticism stating that the CRA needed to update itself to meet the current banking climate. In 1995, the internet was very much not really a thing. I mean, it existed, but we weren't all on it. Now, a lot of people do their financial transactions online, and the CRA doesn't really account for that in the same sort of way that uh, you might account for a brick and mortar type institution. There's been a lot of discussion about how do you test somebody's footprint when their banking institution is really online. So those are some of the major things that need to be updated, and the federal regulators have acknowledged that. And there's been a long discussion over the last few years about how to update the CRA. Right now, the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, and the FDIC, which is the insurer for all of the banking institutions in the United States, for the most part, are asking for comment on proposed rules that would update the CRA to kind of take into account some of 
these footprint problems, as well as lending tests over different types of institutions, whether they're more commercial lender or more of a investment, uh, a different investment type uh, bank, so that it meets some of those challenges that have come up over the last 25 years. So, so just in, in full transparency, we did not plan this podcast to coincide with the rules for CRA. It just kind of happened to work that way. So I, it'll be very interesting to see what happens after this common period, I think. Yeah, literally, we are recording this on August 4th, and comments are due tomorrow, August 5th. So that's, that's where we are in the timing. I think that just means that we'll have to have a follow-up podcast with you, Chase, when the results of that come out. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So we've talked about the Federal Community Reinvestment Act. You've explained kind of the history, some of the examples of disparate treatment in the 30s that resulted in the Community Reinvestment Act, then some of the amendments that ended up with disparate impact. Those are terms that we discussed a few episodes ago on our credit access episode. So if anyone wants to understand kind of disparate treatment and disparate impact and how it impacts finances, we'll link the credit access show in our show notes. But for now, let's shift over and focus on the 2021 Illinois Community Reinvestment Act that was recently passed. Chase, I know you were instrumental in bringing this to Illinois. So can you tell us a little bit about how this idea came around? Yeah, and not every state has a state-level Community Reinvestment Act. Important to acknowledge that, in fact, very few states do. A handful of them you might be familiar with uh, New York, Massachusetts, Washington State. And these were all passed as ways to get at maybe certain problems that were not addressed as quickly on the federal TRA rule. Some of them passed immediately after the 1977 law, and some of them have passed more recently. I can tell you from Illinois' perspective, the reason why a state CRA passed here, or was an idea, was the idea that the current federal law was missing a lot of information in terms of its evaluation on our financial system, not just our banking system, but our financial system in terms of equity. Something that we haven't talked about to this point. In 1977, when this passed, like we said, banks were the vast majority of retail lenders in the United States, which kind of was hinting at, well, what is it now? And that is not the case. Right now, more than half of the mortgage market in the United States are done by non-banks. Those would be your Quicken Loans, you know, some of those online lenders and that is really a trend that is that has exploded in the last 10 12 years since the great recession that they have become a dominant force in that lending spot they do not have deposits but they do all these lending activities and they have focused on a lot of those communities and until this point they have not had to play by the same rules as the banking institutions in terms of community investment. Same goes for our credit unions. Now, credit unions have changed quite radically over the last 50 years. A lot of credit unions, as you might be aware of, are still very focused on their community. Uh, Maybe they're focused on a particular company that a lot of people work at or a church group, maybe a, a, a very small regional area, things like that. They have to have some sort of united mission. But there are a lot of credit unions that have become 
huge, large, multi-billion dollar institutions. And a lot of their activity is very similar to banks. And the banks will tell you that they're very similar to banks. And so those entities also haven't had the same sort of rules around. Neither of those groups are examined for the CRA. And now they're dominating a lot of areas in which in 1977 were banks. So that certainly needs to be addressed. In Illinois, there was a hearing just before the CRA was proposed, a state-level CRA, and it was discussing an article that had reviewed some of the lending activities around home loans in Chicago, and it made these criticisms around kind of the different levels of, of interest in lending into different communities of color versus white communities in the city. Well, a lot of the lending institutions that were mentioned within that article were not banks. They were non-bank mortgage lenders. And so there was this discussion, well, we need to make sure we modernize this so that people are really getting the full impact on the CRA. There's also other reasons why the state has, has looked at this to make sure that you know, we're adhering to updated procedures around, you know, lending tests, around ideas of fair lending and things like that, that created the need for a state level CRA. So that was passed in 2021. And believe it or not, we're working on our rules right now. So we're doing this in the same time period that the federal rules are being uh, reviewed, which is an interesting process. But the expectation is that we will work with our federal partners going forward I'm partnering on some of these tests to make sure that our community here in Illinois is getting the full equitable treatment that it that it should within our financial system. Like I said, a lot of the redlining organizations started here in Illinois. So we need to be cognizant as regulators here of that history. And it needs to inform our practice going forward. Every day I think about where we have come from in terms of our financial system and how people many years ago worked very hard in this state to try to make our system more equitable. And we're, we owe it to them to, to keep going forward with that fight. I am very happy to see that the Illinois CRA like took that extra step to include credit unions, because when you were talking about the federal CRA, I was actually really surprised that they weren't included so I, I think that's a very unique point that shows how dedicated you and the partners that made the Illinois CRA a reality, like are taking that, like how seriously they're taking this. But on that note, are there spelled out requirements that financial institutions need to do under the Illinois CRA? So, yeah. So like I said earlier, we're still going through our rules process. So there will be a lot more to discuss in terms of, you know, specifics around the examination process. But the, the Illinois CRA, when it was passed through, outlined a lot of different ways that, the, that a institution would be examined for, including fair lending standards. I think most of our banking institutions will have already built out CRA compliance team that should be able to handle that compliance with the Illinois exam going forward. We have reviewed a lot of different banking institutions here in Illinois, and we the expectation is that if you are if you're serious as an institution around the federal CRA, you should be well equipped to handle examinations from the Illinois side. Now, 
for credit unions and non-bank mortgage lenders, they haven't had to adhere to this before. So they have a lot of building out from a compliance team standard. Um, and there'll be a lot of growing pains, I am sure, as they get up to compliance. But as long as they're dedicated toward getting that done, I think that they will do fine on their examinations. Now, the interesting thing about the non-bank mortgage lenders, as opposed to the bankers and the credit unions, is that they're licensed on activity within a state. So we license you to do that type of activity in Illinois. That doesn't mean that you're headquartered in Illinois. That doesn't mean that you have substantial offices in Illinois, but it does mean that you're doing business in Illinois. Banks are chartered based on where they are located, where their headquarters are, and they can be chartered on a state level or a federal level, kind of similar to credit unions. So with some of our larger mortgage lenders, they might already be complying with another state CRA, and that is Massachusetts, the only other state in the country that also, before we passed our law, was doing reviews of non-bank mortgage lenders. Since ours had passed, New York has announced that they're going to do the same thing. So there will be three states that will be reviewing this process, and they theoretically <laughs> should have built out a team to handle the Massachusetts side that would also be good here in Illinois. Well, we will see. And we will see if they are reporting the correct information that they need to. Um, we've heard from our Massachusetts friends that that took a while for a lot of institutions to get comfortable with. And this is a very important process to us. We are going to look at you very carefully to make sure that you're complying with our CRA. On the banking side, they already know this, and they'll soon know this from the credit union and non-bank side. So we do expect there to be some growing pains. There always are with new compliance pieces, but our expectation is that a bank, that the, these institutions will take this seriously and build their teams accordingly. So I usually play the consumer transparency kind of role. So from a consumer perspective, Chase, can you just like outline the things the Illinois Community Reinvestment Act requires the financial institutions to do to make sure that they are providing equitable services when it comes to mortgages? Well, it's not just mortgages. The CRA also applies to commercial lending. Okay. Um, so small business lending, things like that. But for the big thing for consumers to be aware of with the CRA is that public comment is required for the Illinois CRA. That is not true with the federal CRA. Now, I can't explain that process further because that, that is detailed within rules, but it is within the act itself that a public comment would be included within the evaluation process. And we're going to want to solicit some of that comment to make sure that institutions are behaving in an equitable way that their customers think is fair, given you know whatever their footprint might be. The other thing is we're going to be expecting these institutions to have kind of a robust strategic plan around how they're going to adhere to kind of the CRA standards outlined within the rules. So from a consumer perspective, you're going to see more public notice about these items, you're going to see some of those reports published, things like that, to make sure that institutions are adhering to those standards. And then, you know, we as uh, regulators are going to make sure that we're getting feedback from consumers that they, they feel like they're being heard within that process. 
Chase, I, I obviously know IDFPR plays a role in the Illinois CRA, but were there any other groups or individuals or anything like that that were involved with this idea for the Illinois CRA? Yeah, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the champion of the Illinois State CRA, who I'm going to assign to Senator Jackie Collins. She was previously uh, the financial institutions, the banking chair of a a committee in the Senate before she uh, moved up in leadership. But she has been a consumer advocate on financial issues in her entire career. I think even going back to before she was elected, when she was a journalist. She pushed really hard, was a, was a major champion of this, even going back to before it was introduced as legislation. And I know she listened to a lot of different groups, a lot of consumer advocate groups. Uh, there was kind of coalition around those. Illinois uh, Housing Action, Woodstock Institute, I'm going to miss a bunch of them, but that, that group that were very publicly talking with uh, Senator Collins about you know avenues that they wanted to go down. And I know that they organized real heavily around the implementation of this. Now, what I'll also say is through Senator Collins' leadership and her discussion with her legislative colleagues, this became a major initiative of the Legislative Black Caucus in a kind of special session where um, they pushed forward a, a number of pillars. And this, this was contained within one of those pillars. And I know that this was a major initiative by the Legislative Black Caucus, but had a vast, vast support from those caucuses in both the House and the Senate. And, you know, that matters a lot. The, that's the, the, the caucus was really stating to us that we, we feel very strongly that our financial system is not necessarily as equitable as we want it to be, especially in terms of communities of color. And we take that under advisement as we start implementing this program, that that was the legislative intent from the legislature to make sure that our system was more more equitable, both in low and moderate income groups, but other vulnerable communities that might be being missed by the federal CRA. Thank you, Chase, for kind of going over all the different entities that were supportive in making this happen, this, this new protection. So it came out this... Illinois Community Reinvestment Act came out in 2021, but you just mentioned earlier that you're going through rulemaking process. So when does it actually go into effect for consumers? Technically, it is already in effect. It has an immediate effective date, but the examinations haven't started yet. And here's the reason why. Um, There needs to be rules around those examinations. There also needs to be staff that are specialized for those examinations. We're hiring that staff right now. So we have every intention of doing examinations in uh, the start of 2023. We've been talking to our federal partners about coordinating on some of those examinations. So that, that is kind of the intent. We'll see the rules process once it goes to a joint rulemaking committee within the legislature. You know, it's kind of out of our hands. There can be multiple revisions there. And if that process takes a long time, that might delay some items. But, um, you know, we're hoping to get those examinations kind of up and going next year. And we keep throwing this around about rulemaking and, and rules. And for people out there who may not understand or know that process, like I know personally, right, when you're taught a in school about how to pass a law, they don't also then talk about rules. So if you could kind of give a brief overview of what that means for our listeners, that'd be great. Yeah. And this isn't true in every state, but in Illinois, 
when you pass a law, there might be things that are not given sufficient details within the legislation, uh, not, not purposefully or non-purposely. It's just there are things that might need to be adjusted over time or things that need further detail. And those are done in rules. Now, the legislature still votes on those rules in Illinois, but it's actually a joint committee between the Senate and the House that reviews the rules, puts them up for public comment, maybe adjust them. And these are things like fees that are attached to examinations, for instance, or kind of thresholds in which different sized entities are examined just within the CRA's piece. What are some of the core paperwork and tenants and and deadlines and things like that that are going to be within that process? These are the details for the law. Not every law needs to go through rules, but for large acts, um, it's important to kind of uh, make those those more clear. And the legislature does that because when when a major act is passed, it's not necessarily clear exactly what all those details need to be. And that needs to go through its own discussion process. And the legislature acknowledges that through rules, usually a uh, agency is assigned to shepherding those rules through that process because they have the expertise in that field. But then there's all sorts of public comment that comes in around those rules to make sure that the program can actually be implemented effectively. So we've talked about both the federal and the Illinois Community Reinvestment Acts now. Chase, how will they work together or complement each other? So part of this obviously is still pending because both of us are doing rules right now. So that's obviously a little bit of a caveat. But let me explain how it works in another state that has the state CRA already. So in Massachusetts, they coordinate with their federal partners to do their examinations kind of concurrently. Now, they might be looking at slightly different items, but they're working together toward a similar goal. And they don't want to have multiple folks in there at different times. That's kind of overly burdensome to whatever institution they're doing. And since they're looking at similar information, it makes sense for them to be there at the same time. The expectation is we'll do the same thing here in Illinois. And I can say that that's our expectation because currently we uh, examine banks for safety and soundness. That's mostly around risk entities around there to make sure that the institution is not in any sort of danger, um, is being consumer compliant, that sort of thing. And those examinations are done concurrently with federal partners um, from the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. So the expectation is to have a similar thing. Now, there could be a situation where we disagree sufficiently enough on a rating where our examination would have to come earlier or later than the federal side. And that, you know, those are going to happen. That happens on the safety and soundness side as well. And we just will have to adjust accordingly. But that's that's how we foresee that uh, working with those partners. And we've been talking with our federal partners since this has passed. Um, we actually have a regular meeting with them. Now, they, they since went into their rule process. So it's been kind of an interesting building an airplane while trying to take off. So that's been interesting, but we are in constant communication with them to make sure that this is as effective as possible. Director, I know that this is a personal passion for you. Can you kind of explain why the state CRA is so important to you? So the reason I love my job and want to to keep doing it is I believe very strongly that in order for a society to be 
you know, to effectively grow and develop, it needs to be equitable across the board. And everything that we do, whether it's wanting to start a new business with a new idea or go to college or buy a home or buy a car requires financing. And so it's important to make sure that that system that is really developed to to make sure that money is flowing throughout the economy is equitable and is focused on addressing issues that come up from time to time. So I'm very passionate about making changes to that system that improve it. And I think it is without a doubt ways to improve. Equity is always helpful to improve. If you think of, let's think of a small business, anybody can have a small business idea. And maybe the coolest idea possible that everybody is going to want is done by somebody that is coming from a vulnerable or underserved community. Well, that idea never gets to happen because they don't get the correct financing. We need to fix that so that everybody can benefit from the great ideas that our communities come up with, regardless of what community you're coming from. And so that's why I've been very strongly in supportive of the of the state CRA, as well as other equitable pro- programs. Um, so to make that financial system not just more equitable, but just better in general. It's, a, it's, it's better for everybody when money is moving around in an efficient and equitable manner. Thank you so much, Chase, for your passion towards regulatory and, and enforcement actions that help to improve our, our financial system, as, as you've talked about. Are there any other ideas that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I, I would encourage everyone to kind of pay attention to the rules process. I know it's a very minutiae thing, but some of the big scandals around different institutions, mostly national institutions that have you know, ripped off consumers or caused financial products, they stem from failures to effectively regulate those pieces. And it's important for people to know where those deficiencies are and how you know, your government is trying to address them. And where you have questions, ask them, you know, publicly ask them, ask them of your regulator, your state regulator, or federal regulators to make sure that they're paying attention. Most of the time, I'll tell you, they absolutely understand and are are trying to address that system. But it's important to hear from people on the ground where deficiencies are happening. And it, it, is, it might be boring and in the minutiae, but it's important to see how those issues are taken up by you know, your government and are addressed. And if they're not being addressed effectively, to how to adjust to that. I just want to make sure that everybody just keeps aware of this process. Might not be as sexy as another topic I talked about later, which was the GameStop items. But I will tell you, that even in that conversation, regulation had a role. There were things that were going on that required supervision. And so it all ties back together, understanding this process, understanding what your government's trying to do for you to make sure your system is fair. Thank you so much for being here today, Director. As I mentioned, the Director is my my boss, um, and I feel lucky every day because you could hear how passionate he is about uh, helping people. I enjoy having guests on, particularly when we can help shed the light. I feel like there's a lot of people who feel that people in government aren't looking out for those less fortunate or trying to work on systems that have issues. And I, I really like being able to highlight that 
that is not true for everybody, <laughs> that we, that there are really good people out there in government who are working every day to try to make, in this case, lending more equitable, right? Thank you again, Director, for being here and, and for teaching us about this very important topic. Thank you for having me. I can go on for days about this stuff, so I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about it, and I hope it leaves people curious and interested in learning more. I'm sure it will, and we'll have to have you back on for the follow-up episode, as we've already discussed. And I'm sure there'll be other things to pop up. I always learn a bunch when you're on <laughs> Director Raywinkle, so we always love having you on because you're a wealth of knowledge. To our listeners, as always, please listen, like, subscribe, and share Making Sense of Money with your family and friends, and we'll talk to you next time.